Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. I'm your guest host today, Joe Sancio, Head of Strategic Marketing here at Yield Street. A couple of housekeeping items first. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Remember to leave a review, especially a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That helps everybody find the show and us grow our audience and to reach as many investors as we possibly can. Today, we have a very special guest. I'm joined by Jeff Eagles, former New York Giant and arguably one of the best punters in NFL history. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Good to be here. Great to have you, and it's not every day we're joined by literally living legends. Uh so for those that may not be overly familiar with your career, I can't imagine there are many people watching that aren't familiar well, with you who you know. are. <laughs> but Depends on how young they are. <laughs> <laughs> I think you transcend generations. You played in the NFL for three different across three different decades. Yeah, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, yeah. So the game changed a lot between those 20, 30 years or whatever. So before we dive in, why don't you give a brief uh, background on yourself for everybody watching? Well, yeah, so – Started football at a late age. I mean, I only played football my high, in high school my senior year, and um, I was more of a baseball player, so kind of got into uh, – I went to a small Catholic school in Phoenix and really didn't have a lot of guys on the team, so I just ended up punting and playing backup quarterback my senior year. Um, and then really kind of took to punting. I really liked it. So I went to a junior college, played baseball and football there, and then – my sophomore year, rising sophomore year, I, I was uh, recruited to go to the University of Miami because I, I uh, went to a kicking camp and pretty much lit up the whole place. The guy was like, you know, where are you from? Who are you? <laughs> and Miami was looking for a punter. Their punter had transferred. And so, you know, within a few months, I was at the University of Miami and, of course, played there for three years and uh, won the national championship my senior year. If you see those 30 for 30s, down to you I was there that whole time had no idea a lot of the stuff was going on then until I actually watched the the whole thing I was like wow okay this is crazy um and then of course you know just as a free agent I didn't get drafted which was amazing because there was like 14 rounds back then <laughs> in 1988 there was that many rounds in, in uh, football can you imagine what 14 rounds in 2022 would be like it would take like a week to do it the production that it is but that would um, be far too much time spent way in too Vegas. much and so you know, I break it in. I, I actually made it my first try in the NFL. So I was a free agent, went in there and won the job. And then basically 22 years later, you know, I retired <laughs> and um, pretty much did everything I needed to do in my career. I mean, I made Pro Bowls. And finally, in my 20th season, the 07 Super Bowl against the Patriots, that was my first Super Bowl. And that was tw and it was 20th, my 20th season. Um, there was 10 rookies on that team that year that went to the Super Bowl and won it in their first year, which was insane. Um, but that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's so I spanned, you know, the 80s and 90s and I retired in 09. So the game changed tremendously as far as the game, also the money. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, my first year in the NFL, I made $52,000. That was my base salary for 16 games. Um, so a lot changed. And, you know, then after uh, after I retired, it just you know, I went to work for the New York Giants. So I do their radio and broadcasting stuff on Sundays for the game, pre and post game. So it's a lot of fun. Sound, it's a tremendous career. And I think you were a bit modest while describing <laughs> it. So just for everybody bit. following along at home, Jeff played for the University of Miami, won a national championship in 1987, which mm -hmm. we'll get into, the U, 
the literal you era. And then in the NFL, Super Bowl champion, two-time Pro Bowl selection, so 95 and 08. Mm -hmm. And you were all rookie team. Mm -hmm. And you also have four NFL records, most consecutive games, most career punt yards, most career punts, and most career punts inside the 20. Well, that's 22 years of football. <laughs> You're going to definitely get those, a couple of those records. The one that I'm most proud of, and I don't think anybody will ever break it, is the 352 games I played. Um, I, I was going to say, no, you never get sick, no colds. Oh, nothing. yeah, yeah, at all. All the above, check all the boxes. <laughs> um, the closest I came to what, missing a game was actually going to be my 300th game and, uh, and it, when, when I was with the Giants, and uh, there was no way I was missing that game. And so, yeah, played her a couple of days. You know, but for the most part, got pretty lucky as far as injuries, nothing serious. Um, but, you know, just dedicated to my craft, you know, being able to be there every day and work and, and be able to play. That's awesome. So we're definitely going to get into that. But I'm going to start with what's probably my favorite period in college football history ever, and that's the U era. So <laughs> 80, you think 80s college football, it's the U. You, we've all seen the 30 for 30. Um, I'm a bit too young to have actually watched those years live, but – got to be one of the most exciting <laughs> errors ever and fun fact oh the, yeah the first yeah. piece of sports apparel i think i ever owned or one of the first ones my parents bought me a hurricanes hat on nice. a trip to disney when i was a kid the thing's got to be 30 years old i still have it good it's amazing um so what was it like playing for the u in the 80s so again remember i came from a very small school in arizona and then also went to a very small junior college so 500 people probably in the stand playing football. And so going to the U, I didn't even know that the University of Miami won a national championship in 84 when <laughs> I went there. Um, that's how naive I was, that's how stupid I was. I don't know what you want to call it, but I just was there. I, I just said, okay, you know what? And that's a long ways to go from Arizona to Miami. Um, and at the time, my wife now, and we were, we were, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend, it was like very difficult for me to leave, but I did. Um, and then, so I get there, and have no idea how good this team is. You know, <laughs> I really don't. I remember the first game I ever played in was in the old Orange Bowl against the University of Florida. And I walk out on the field and I look up and, you know, there, there wasn't, it wasn't sold out yet, but there, the game was sold out. There was 80,000 people there. I mean, we used <laughs> to 500 people in the stands and I was in shock. Like, basically, I didn't know how I was going to play, but I just kind of, you know, muddled through it. And, and before you know it, I mean, we, I lost three games in college. And two of them, two of them, there was, in fact, that was, that was the first game I played and we lost against Florida. And then after that, we lost in a couple bowl games. And then, of course, we went undefeated in my, in my senior year in 1987. And, um, you know, at that time, I knew how good we were. But it took me three years to convince me that this is, this is real. And I would, if anybody that's listening to this can equate to what University of Miami was back then, that's Alabama. We, yep. were, we were Alabama as they are today. That's what we were then. Nobody could beat us. We were mean. We were tough. We were nasty. And we broke all the rules. <laughs> so. so let's take your championship team in 87 with Michael Irvin compared to one of the national champion, one of the more recent national championship teams from Alabama. Who wins? Um, I got to say that we win because, number one, I feel like we just are – we were tougher and just, you know, these guys were just, just mean and just, <laughs> I mean, they, and they were ballers. I mean, I think that, and you know, nowadays the guys are just, they're caught up in a little bit of, you know, Alabama gets every one of the players, you know, in the, and, but Miami didn't get all the players. Miami was like homegrown guys. These were guys from around, you know, Miami, Dade County and in the state of, of Florida, uh, Alabama gets people from all over the place, but I think we would have beat them just because we're Miami. That's why. <laughs> Spirit of the U. Yes. Love it. So question you may not get often, what was your major while you were at Miami? Well, a lot of people that went to Miami, they el eligibility was their major, you know, cause <laughs> I, and this is no lie. I remember going to class. Um, I, and my, I got a degree in business management, so I was okay. in a business school there. I was in class all the time because I had no idea that I was going to play professional football. So my whole intent was just to graduate college and go get a job. But there were so many times I would be sitting in my class going, where is everyone? Where are all these other football guys? Why am I the only one that's going to school? So uh, it was, and that's the truth. And you know, I don't, I don't know how all they all graduated if they did or not, but um, I was more there to go to school and to get a business degree. And that's what I did. And 
Um, so that was important to me. I, and like I said, I, I was, I didn't get drafted in the NFL. I went as a free agent. So I still don't think anybody believed I was going to be in the NFL either. They would have drafted me. So kind of proved them wrong. It's always nice to do that, right? It is. Yeah. It was, and I always had a chip on my shoulder, I guess, like Tom Brady, you know, he was a fifth round draft pick and he goes into, you know, the best that's ever played the game. Um, I kind of had the same chip on my shoulder, you know? So, and it was kind of funny because in my second year in the NFL, I got cut by the Patriots. They were the only team to ever fire me. <laughs> I never got fired again after that, but I, I paid them back in no seven. I was going to say, you definitely got I your got revenge. Back. Yeah, definitely. So was the NFL the main object? Because I know you just said that you had a major, you went to yeah. class. What, w- what would life have been like if you didn't go to the NFL? What did you picture That's a good that question. I've been asked that before. You know, I, I don't know. I, all I do know is I would have used what I learned in college, my business background, um, and just been able to – you know, segue into some sort of, you know, business stuff, um, I guess. I mean, I, I, I always loved real estate and eventually that's kind of what I went into, but and I'll tell you a little bit about that later, but it's, um, you know, somewhere in the business world, I, I would have been doing something. There you go. Hopefully. But, but it did work out. You went undrafted. So tell us about that. Did you actually enter the draft and not get drafted or did you just stay out entirely? No, I, I was a senior. So, okay. you know, like they didn't have back then you had to play all four years. Um, yep. They had changed that later on. So I remember just I remember going fishing on draft day. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I was going to get drafted. And um, on the third third day, um, you know, the, whatever round it was around the 12th, 13th round, I was getting phone calls from teams wanted to meet they said we're not going to draft you but we want to sign you as a free agent new england was one of them and atlanta was the other one and atlanta their punter had just gone to the pro bowl the year before that so i'm like i'm not going to go there um so i had a chance to to go up to new england and um funny story is that new england was one of the teams that worked me out on our senior day um and jimmy johnson the coach there he had told me that listen you know you're not going to get worked out i mean we're not it's not a formal workout for you but i know you can play and I'm going to tell everybody about you. So I want you to make sure you're, you're there so that when the testing is all the stuff is done, if anybody wants to come over and work you out, just make sure you're there. Get your bag of footballs, sit over there, and then hopefully somebody comes over. Well, Bobby Beathard at the time, these guys are both dead now, and Dick Steinberg, they were the personnel guys for the, um, the two teams. One of them was um, San Diego, and then the other one was New England. And so they worked me out. And so New England ended up liking what they saw, and that's how I got to go to New England. That's that's incredible. <laughs> so going from totally undrafted to workouts to yeah. now you're in the NFL. So what was that transition like? Well, because you were at Mi- you Miami yeah. was arguably an NFL team. Hundred hundred percent. So that helped me. Um, you know, if I was at a smaller school, I think it probably would have been a little more intimidating. In fact. When I got there, there was a lot of people that didn't didn't know if I was a, a street free agent or I actually was a veteran that just from another team. Um, it, it just and it wasn't the swagger that I brought in there. It was just I think that I was just doing well. And I think playing in big games, playing in national championships, playing at a big school helped me be able to focus when I went in there and trying to earn a job with the Patriots. So that was a good thing. That's awesome. What advice would you have for yourself or other, say, 22 year olds? now going out of college into the NFL like what did you what did you learn almost immediately or what it took you 22 seasons to figure out well it's out? funny because from the punting position i would tell them that they just have to be very very consistent and that's that's the biggest thing because at any professional level no matter what it is you watch basketball those guys don't miss you know you you see hockey those guys don't miss sh- i mean you know what i'm saying it's like it's at a level that uh, the coaches and the organization expect they expect consistency and so punting or kicking, if you're a kicker, you got to make everything. And I know you're not going to, but that's your mentality. And punting is the same way. Every kick, I have to do it. So, it's, you know, really in punting, you only have about five or six swings. That's about it. So you want to make sure that every single one of those, and that's, and how do you get there? You got to practice. I mean, guys are just lazy. And, you know, they don't want to go out there. I grew up in Arizona where it's 115 in the summer. You know, you got to go out in the park by yourself with the bag of footballs and you got to do your drills and you got to kick. That's what it takes, and that's what it took for me to get to the level I did. So for the younger people, that's what you got to do. You got to practice, practice, practice. And the other thing is for the younger guys that are coming to the NFL that are positional players, they have to understand that they're not going to play that position for a, for a while because there's veterans on, above them. Unless you're a first-round draft pick like Thibodeau or Neal or some of those guys, they're, gonna, they're immediate starters. But they're also the first 
five picks in the draft. They're expected <laughs> to play. These other guys, they're going to play special teams. And most of them, you know, their junior and senior years in college never played special teams. So they're going to have to learn to play special teams. That's the number one thing that I even with working with the Giants and I get to talk to a lot of these guys. I let them know that, listen, don't push away that, pl- that special teams playbook. Because you, you need to get in that thing probably more than your offense or defensive play, but because that's how you're going to make the team. You know, these are like, this is like third, fourth, fifth round guys. You know, first and second rounders, those guys are going to be playing. Um, but they're also going to be playing special teams too. You got to pay your dues. You got to do all the You got to pay your dues. And it's just like when you were a freshman in college, you know, you weren't starting, you were playing special teams. So it's like, it's here you go again. You're a rookie, you're a freshman again. So same stuff. Pretty much put the ego in check. Although you're a freshman now and you're getting paid. So you're a rookie, you're getting paid good money. So that's what you got to understand. Speaking of money, what about planning for the future financially? Since I think the NFL still has the shortest tenure. Obviously, you were an exception to that rule, clearly. But I think it's like three and a half, maybe five years tops for an NFL player. It is. And I, I, you know, unfortunately for the guys, I I hope that every one of them can make as much money as they can because the league is, you know, clearly – head and shoulders above all the other leagues. I mean, when you look at what the NFL does on draft day, I mean, it's, it's amazing what's, what goes on. Um, they did, they got to try to get the Pro Bowl right, which I don't know <laughs> what they're doing there. Listen, when I went to the Pro Bowl, we, we always went to Hawaii. Are you telling me that's not a great experience? <laughs> Listen, the, uh, it is a great experience if you can, you know, you go to Hawaii, but they're like, I remember they brought it back to the United States. Like they yep. went to Miami and they went to San Diego. Like, what is that? Like, this is not, <laughs> I mean, go to Hawaii where you can at least have some fun and go to some place that a lot of people don't go to. But um, financially, you know, put it away. Put it away. Uh, live on, you know, within your means. And then, you know, and invest in every single thing that the NFL does for you. Your 401k, your annuities. You got to put all that money in, into, put it away, you know. And it's funny because I was on the, uh, I was one of the reps on our team when I was in Phoenix and in Arizona, which was my third team I played for. And one of the upper management guys came to me as the player rep and said to me, he says, listen, I don't know if you can do this, but you know, you have about, there's about 5% of the guys on your, on our, on the team that are not putting their money in 401k, which is ridiculous because it's a, it was a two for one match. For every dollar I put in, they put two bucks in to the maximum what the what the um, the government would let you put in, pre-tax, by the way. And some of these guys weren't doing it. And it's funny because I'm 56 now. Um, I retired when I was 44. But you know, so my pension will be probably one of the highest. In fact, one of the highest pensions you'll ever get the NFL because it's 22 years. But the thing about it is, my 401k, I kept, I I maxed it every single year that I played. So and I'm sure the guys in your team weren't just sticking that money under their mattress. No, I, I mean, they were out blowing it somewhere, you know, but the fact is, is that that's free money, you know, and you're going to and before you know it, you're going to be 45 or 50 and you're going to realize, you know, you can take some of that money if you want it. But, you know, it's going to be there for when you get older. But and even if you only play for three or four years, that's still money that, you know, compounding interest over years. And by the time you get to your 55 or 60, that's going to be worth a lot of money for you. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the power of investing that yeah. even at the most baseline level of 401ks, I think gets lost on a lot of not only professional athletes, but I think younger generations. And it's something that's frankly just not taught to you in school. It's it's <laughs> sorry. Somebody dropped money something in the in. studio. I, I have <laughs> four boys. So my oldest is 31 and my second oldest is 28. They have corporate jobs. And so when they were signing up for when they were coming on to their to their jobs, they had to fill out their 401k stuff. And I, and I kept telling them, like, you know, they're like, Dad, we're, we're 24 years old. What, what are we, 401K? I'm like, listen, put the, put the money in there. And I remember about a year ago, my son, who was 30 at the time, said to me one day, he goes, Dad, I cannot believe how much money I have in my 401K. You know, <laughs> he's like, and it was like almost $100,000 when he's only 31 years old. And I'm like, CJ, you know how much money that's going to be when you're 55 or 60, the compound set, rule 72, if you will? That's going to, I mean, but aren't you glad you did that? He's like, I just couldn't believe it because I just got used to it being taken out of my paycheck every, every two weeks. I didn't really realize it until I was checking my statements. And he, what he did is he switched jobs. So he transferred this stuff in. That's when, that's he, when he, he found ended it. Up seeing it. So that's the advice that you want to give people, you know, even if they're not playing football, is just you got to, you know, you just had to, it's taxes and some of your, you know, your, your retirement stuff. Because before you know it, listen, it goes by quickly. It just time flies, you know, it really does. 
Well, I can't imagine what somebody who's been in the league for, say, three or five years feels like compared to your longevity of 22 years. That's sure. longer than most people spend in a single career in the corporate world. Right, right. And it's all, you know, it's all relative because, you know, back when I, I told you that my first year in the NFL, my salary was $52,000 for 16 games. That's not a lot of money after taxes when you think about it, right? Um, and I think that, you know, nowadays kids, you know, starting out are probably making a little bit more than that. But the fact is, is that, um, you just have to be disciplined with what you're doing and you have to realize that this thing is, you know, if you just put a little bit away every single time, it's going to be good for the NFL guys. They're not making 52,000. They're making 52,000 a week now. <laughs> and so it's even more powerful for them to even play three or four years because their, their value of the money that they make while they're in the national football league is so compounding between three and four. And if you're even, if let's just say, you know, the, the draft picks that they, they usually all sign about four-year deals and except there's a fifth-year option for a first rounder but if you play that contract out and you play it out and you got a chance to get a second contract it's going to be even more worth it's going to be a lot of money and so and maybe you only play three more years of that before you know it you're in the league for seven years you got a couple million dollars stashed away and you know compounding money you're going to be fine but you got to be disciplined and I think the biggest part about it is, is that you just don't realize how much money you're spending going out and doing this. You just got to put that stuff aside first and then live on the rest of it. 100%. I mean, a lot of that comes down, the discipline probably comes down to an education factor. And no question. I can't even think of myself at 18 or 19 years old or even 22 or 23 being given yeah. the type of money these guys make on a regular basis. And especially without having some type of financial education or background, you, they probably don't know what to do. They have no idea. I mean, it, you, they they probably teach you a little bit in school here and there, and I think the NFL is doing a better job at educating these guys, the rookies, when they first come in. Excuse me, um, because you know, right now a lot of the veterans are gone. Um, like after the mini camp's over, the veterans leave, but they they keep the rookies for a week, and they're putting these guys through all these seminars and stuff and learning about life skills, learning about security, learning about all this stuff that you're not going to be able to do when you're in the league, you know, because by the way, the only way that a team can find, they find you, right? So when you're in college and you're late for a meeting, you got to run, you know, you got to get up at five o'clock in the morning and do some up downs and this and that. They don't care in the NFL. They just find you $1,500. You missed a meeting. You know, if you're late to a meeting, and by the way, it's compounded. So the next time you miss a meeting, it's three thousand. The next <laughs> time you miss a meeting, it's six thousand. So that's how they get it. They don't care if you be late. Go ahead. It's no big deal. They at the end of the year, they take all the fine money, put it in a pool, and then they donate it to a charity. And they actually give you the choice of where you want to put it. <laughs> <laughs> which charity do you want to give the money to that you were fined for? And you can write it off. But the fact is, is that's real money. So don't be late. It's easy. That goes right back to your concept of discipline. Yeah, exactly. But like the NFL with fines and donating to charity, I think while you were in the NFL, you had a few interesting ways of making, uh, I don't want to say it a side hustle, but heard rumors that uh, you traded numbers with people twice, one oh, being Eli Manning okay. and one yeah. being Plexico yeah. Burris. So look, Yield Street, we do alternative investing, so I'm always interested that's a, that's to hear how your, what your alternative <laughs> investments were. <laughs> So tell us about uh, giving up number 10 to Eli. So this is a great story because I wore number 10 in high school. I wore number 10 in, uh, in my, let's see, I was in Arizona and in Seattle. So 10 was my favorite number. I wore five in Seattle, or excuse me, in Philly. I don't know where six came from. That was in, that was in New England. I just took whatever number they wanted to give me. So anyways, long story short, draft day, 2004, uh, I get a call from Pat Hanlon who's the director of communications for the Giants. I was on the golf course, um, and he said, hey, listen, we just drafted Eli Manning, number 10 from Old Miss, and what are the chances, you know, the number switch? And I said, I got no problems with it. I said, I, I'm pretty sure at the time Eli's going to wear this number a lot longer than I will. You know, at that time I was, uh, whatever year that was in the league, was, uh, you know, he's going to play longer than me from here on out. And I said, let's just, we'll just work something out. So monetarily, we kind of came up with a number, but we ended up saying, okay, you know what? Rather than you pay me the money, then I want you to just pay for a trip for my family. And so <laughs> we, he basically, he, he, all expense paid, first class. We rented a condo right on the beach in Destin, Florida. We, so he sent us to, uh, for spring break, the whole family down there for a whole week. So, I mean, it was probably, I don't know, it was probably a good 15, 20 grand, you know? So <laughs> I made out on that deal. 
So, hey, worked <laughs> out really, really well, and then you guys wound up winning a Super Bowl no, together. No, you know, didn't get taxed for anything, and you just paid for it all. So Perfect. Now, what about Plexico? I heard a rumor that when you gave up number 17 to him, he paid for a kitchen. He never paid for a kitchen. <laughs> um, I got I got height. I got completely. So this is this is a classic. So I didn't know why I took number 17. I know what it was now. When Eli took number 10, I took 17 because that was my 17th year in the league. So I took 17. It meant nothing to me. Just as 17. Plaxico gets signed the next year on March 17th, which obviously was a big day for him, I guess. And he wanted number 17. Well, he kind of, somebody told him what happened with Eli. So I said to him, I said, well, I don't want to go on another vacation. I said, I'm, I've just bought a new house in Ridgewood. I'm wanting to do an outdoor kitchen. And really, when you think about the numbers, I'm thinking, okay, this would be very similar. Um, so why don't we do this? Why don't you, I will buy this outdoor kitchen. You pay for it. Done deal. Until the last game in training camp, I went up to Eli, like, or to uh, Plaxico. This is March now when he got this number, okay? <laughs> and I said, hey, you know, what's the deal with the, the kitchen and everything else? He's like, oh, you know what? Uh, you need to talk to my agent about that. And I'm like, oh, no. This is not going through the agent. This is you and I that did this. <laughs> so ultimately, he never paid me for the kitchen. I never got it. Gave up a number with no payment. Nothing. He hijacked it. Well, I think Plaxico. But I, I, I will tell you this. Um, Giants found out about it and there was, it was made good. Um, and I will tell that he did me a favor. He caught the pass in the end zone <laughs> in Arizona to win the Super Bowl. So I let him off. I'm like, okay, that's cool. That, remember I told you it was my 20th season. I've never won a Super Bowl. He won the, he caught the winning touchdown. So it's all good. Well, there you go, and I'm glad, look, Giants. <laughs> There's an alternative investment right there. <laughs> right there. So Giants, first-class organization, obviously oh, yeah. took care yeah. of you there. Plexico wound up catching a pass for a Super Bowl, so it worked out. Okay. You added Super yep. Bowl champ there. But I think if Plexico still felt like he wanted to make it up to you, a, a solid investment on Yield Street in your name would, would work out. I'm there. Let's go. Get the paperwork There we go. Going. Plexico, you heard it here. you got to make an <laughs> investment on Yield Street for Jeff. That's right. We're holding you to it. Speaking of former players, do you stay in touch with like Eli, Plex, and the rest of the guys? Obviously, you work for the Giants now, so yeah. um, there there's some regulars. I have I have some some buddies of mine that when I played in Philadelphia, I, I keep in. In fact, I'm going to see him this weekend. Mike Golick is a really good friend of mine. Okay. Uh, another guy by the name of Dave Alexander. We were all really close. Our kids were very close. Um, all born within a couple weeks of each other. Um, so I keep in touch with them, and then. Eli, Sean O'Hara, David Deal, guys like that are around the facility a lot that we kind of work together. Um, and, of course, doing a lot of uh, charity golf tournaments. I'm a big golfer. And so the Giants uh, alumni is very prevalent in the area. So we're doing a lot of stuff together. I see a lot of guys that way. But not so much not so much the older, you know, my old teams. It's more the Giants guys and then some yeah. of my good friends from the Philly days. That's awesome. So speaking of golf, what's your, what's your handicap? You taking on Brady or what? Oh, I could take on Brady, yeah. yeah. Oh, so my right. index is a 2-1. All right. The hot takes do not stop. So, so far, Plexico owes you a yield shoot investment, and then we have to get Let's a heads-up match with Brady. Yeah, I mean, if, you want, if we want to do, you know, the game on TV, I'll, I'm, I'd be gladly to do that. They can make, you know, they, they, they have the golf cart. They've custom-made the golf cart, so I could take that. That's pretty <laughs> sweet. Did you, are you a golfer? Love it. So I – my father's the golfer in the family. I played okay. golf for the first time in 15 years with him for Father's Day. Oh, wow. This past uh, week. It, it's definitely not like riding a bike, but yeah. yeah. But so. you were with your dad playing golf. I was the same way this weekend. I have, like I said, I have four boys, and we were able to play a fivesome. Um, so they all got on the course. My third son just started taking up golf about two years ago. So I had the perfect foursome when he didn't play golf. <laughs> and now I've been kicked out of the foursome. So the, the kids play all the time. But, yeah, I, I, I – and, and by the way, punting and golfing are very, very similar. You know, pre, pre-shot routine, you know, swinging easy, tempo, all this kind of stuff. You know, a lot of, a lot of thinking involved in it and stuff like that. So um, I'm a very good putter because it's a good touch, you know. So for them, my short game's good. So, yeah, I'll take on Brady. I'm on. Go ahead and put me in. <laughs> there we go. We'll have to get him. We'll, we'll get him on the next show. I mean, we've we'll already beat thinks. him once. I don't know. I can probably beat him again. You know? Wait, I think he'd be out for revenge. Of course at he this would. Point. And he had, he'd lose again. So. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. Uh, I mean, side note, our CEO, Melinda here, is a Patriots fan. Big Brady guy. Poor but 
That's, that's I, that's no, fault. we can't all be perfect. It's no, no. Everybody has their faults. <laughs> Although that's a big one. Being a Patriots fan is a big one. I was a Patriots fan for two years. That was it. When I worked for them. Other than that, forget about it. Now I hate them. <laughs> you said something interesting about punting and golf and the idea of consistency. We talk about consistency a ton, especially when it comes to investing. You obviously now have experience in commercial and residential real estate and obviously from the investment sure. side. So do you think obviously the mindset that you had as a punter and uh, avid golfer, do you carry that over in the realm of consistency and just investing, maybe not chasing the super high returns and going for something steady over time? Well, I think that, you know, one thing about investing, one thing about buying properties, which is where, where I'm, you know, my job is right now, other than my broadcasting stuff with the Giants, but, you know, feeling comfortable with what you're doing and who you're doing it with is a big thing. Um, you know, the company you work for, the product you're using, um, and, and with real estate, you know, my clients are all looking for number one, they're looking for homes. Um, when I was doing commercial investment properties, things like that, you know, they're looking for returns. Um, and then depending on the market. So you got to be kind of conservative in a way, but you got to be aggressive sometimes to do things. And that's, that takes expertise. You can't, I, I feel like a lot of times talking with my clients, they're asking me for my advice. And because I've done so much investing in real estate that I understand what is good and what's not good. And I'm able to give that to them. So to me, it's very important to be associated with people that number one, you know that they're going to do good for you. And number two, you have a great relationship with them. So. Definitely, given the current state of the market and economy, what are you seeing in the real estate market? Well, we're definitely on a we're definitely on a shift, and that's the term that's used in real estate. Um, we had a heck of a run here the last two years, and I mean, historical runs. Um, still, the market is still is there, um, but interest rates are driving a lot of the buyers away because it's just the affordability factor. You know, working on a five hundred thousand dollar purchase on a home at two and a half percent, your buying power now might be seven hundred thousand. But now that the the numbers have gone up to five and a half six percent, your buying power is now back down. And what's happening is in the market is that you're losing those low end buyers. If you're a high end buyer buying million dollar homes, you most likely have the money to buy it at that level. Most of it's cash anyway, so the interest rates don't really matter. But your buying power as a young person, even somebody in their early 30s or late 20s just getting into a job, you know, a $500,000 home is a lot of money. You go somewhere else other than this area, that's a heck of a home. But your buying power has been lost because of the interest rate. So the rental market's going to start picking up again and because people can't afford the houses. Are you seeing a lot of people still, because during the pandemic, obviously, real estate investing took off. And that was probably one of the hottest real estate markets we'd ever seen. Are you seeing more people still trying to get in from an investment standpoint, knowing that the real, the rental market's going to be what it is? What I'm seeing is that I think that there's a lot of people that are taking a step back now and waiting for the shift to happen and where we're going to start getting into a buyer's market. Um, right now, we're in a total seller's market. You know, you're lining up uh, a year ago on some of my houses that I was listing. There was for basically open houses from one to four for three hours, three hours straight. We had a line out the door for people trying to buy houses. Um, because number one, it was affordable and your interest rates were so low, you can borrow money for nothing. What's going to happen is, is that's going to shift now. So we're going to have the inventory is going to start coming back. And if you're a buyer, you, if you have patience, you're going to be able to, to get some better deals than you are now because everybody's overpaying for homes in the last 18 months. So in the next 18 months, you're going to be able to get back down to respectability and be able to maybe start making some deals as an investor maybe wanting to start to flip those houses and getting some better investment advice and going and doing that and then riding the way back up and then you can hit it on the, on the way up. Definitely. So let's switch gears to commercial real estate. What are you seeing on that? Like, what have you seen in the last six months and what do you think is coming down the pipe? The last six area? months, the last year for commercial real estate has been, um, it's been good and it's been a little bit ugly depending on the sector that you're in. Remember, there was a lot of, a lot of companies that went away from coming to work so the office sector really got hit hard. Um, companies were not going out there and, and moving their, their corporate headquarters to these other places. And there are more people working from home. Now, what's going to happen now? The pandemic is on the, on the you know, the, is going away. Um, but the economy is here we are. So are we going to see more people coming back into work? Are they going to be doing that? So 
Um, that's kind of where you are with commercial, but commercial investment properties was pretty good. And they, those guys did really, really well. Commercial real estate and uh, single family rentals are probably our biggest asset classes on the sure, platform and, sure. and have been for quite some time. So the single family rentals, um, I don't think them, and it depends on the positions the companies are using. I know some of the big companies that are buying, you know, 5,000 homes a month that are doing those types of things They're you know, they're, they're not, they're not selling those homes. Those are, those are, they're sitting on those things and, um, you know, they're always going to do well through this type of a market. So those are the kinds of things that I see that are, that were, is going to steady and just even, even rise up. So that's a good sector to be in. Do, do companies like Blackstone and BlackRock that are buying single family homes in the tens of thousands of numbers at a clip, does that really put pressure on a lot of like people in your business? from the residential market because there's just not enough it's supply. Just, it's, it depends on area. So in the north, the Pacific North in up, not Pacific, the, in the Northeast up here, you don't see a lot of that. Um, so, you know, if you're in the Midwest or out West where there's these big, big uh, housing developments where, you know, the track housing deals where the, you know, there might be six different models of homes, but there's, you know, 600 homes in those things. Those are where people are buying of those things that then they're getting hurt a little bit with that out here. We don't see as much as that going on in, in at least the markets that I'm in. And that's in the North Jersey, Bergen County up in that area. There isn't a lot of that. So you have to worry about it. I'd say North Jersey probably is some of your most wealthy yeah, counties. Yeah, exactly. And, so. and, and those are that's where we that's where as a realtor, you want to land. I mean, there's some there's some really rich zip codes up in my area. So you know, and there's we're we're dealing with towns that are the average sales price of homes are almost eight hundred thousand dollars. So um, you know, you take that number and move it out west or to the Midwest, eight hundred thousand dollars. I mean, you're buying you know the Taj Mahal for some of that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's it's amazing. I think I just saw an article. It's from New York Times, but they compared it they compared it three different markets and it was pretty much what seven hundred fifty thousand dollars would buy you in north jersey in texas and then in the pacific northwest vastly different options vastly. yeah yeah and i lived in seattle and and in fact that's where i started my real estate career was in seattle in 1998 i was actually believe it or not i was selling homes to players in the off season because so this, this is while you were a punter yeah yeah. So what happened is I got when I moved to Seattle, I had three kids. And when I got there, there was no relocation, nothing in the building. They were just said, oh, no, we don't have anything like that. You know, and I had kids in school. So I'm like, this doesn't make sense. So I'm like, you know what? I, wait a second. This, this, this doesn't make sense at all. So I said, you know what? What am I doing in the offseason? I'm going to get my real estate license. Everybody free agents that's signing here, every every rookie that's going to come here. I'm going to sell and rent homes to these guys. I sold homes to Matt Hasselback, Trent Dilfer. I mean, all these guys that were, <laughs> were coming here as free agents or getting drafted, I was selling homes. And when they left, I just recycled. And I played there for five years. So that's where I built my, my presence of a real estate market and understand it. And then when I moved to Jersey, when I signed with the Giants in 03, I got my license again and was doing it. Else. I just never knew I was going to play football as long as I did because that's what I wanted to do when you asked me earlier, like what kind of a business you want to do. I didn't know coming out of college. I had no clue. But I know as I was going through, I was doing some things, flipping some homes that started to make a little bit of money in the NFL. I started buying my first couple of houses and flipping them, my brother and I. And then when I moved to Seattle, I ended up getting my license and then that's where I am today. So now I, I still take care of a lot of the, the players, the players, the Giants coaches, you know, it's just, it's just the thing I do. That's amazing. So you've always had a side hustle. You've always had a passive income stream while you've been in the- I've always tried to do something because you know what? I, honestly, remember I told you that I wasn't making enough money. You know, that $52,000 a year is a lot of money, I guess, when I first came out of college, but it doesn't pay a lot of the bill. So I needed a, kind of an alter, alternative income and just to, to being able to do that and something that I enjoyed. I really loved housing. I loved redoing stuff. I'm very handy. And, uh, you know, I actually had two condos in Seattle that I rented out. Um, so it was just a, you know, it's one of those things where you just kind of build wealth through real estate it's, and you really can't. And if you did, you know, if you did, you bought a bunch of homes and did, and some flips like this in the last 10, 15 years, you made a lot of money. That's incredible. So hot take number three here, folks, is <laughs> even if you're an NFL player, you need multiple streams of income. No well, matter in, what. in 19, in the, in the late eighties and early nineties. Yeah. I mean, now <laughs> these guys are getting paid, you know, minimum salaries are like a million bucks. So, I mean, but still the thing about it is, is it, you could still, 
you know, nowadays football is almost a full-time job. It never before it wasn't kind of. We had an off season. We really had an off season. We had one mini camp. That was it. Now they have OTAs. They have all this stuff that the guys are there all the time now. So it might be more difficult, but it's all relative. They're making a lot more money than I did back then. So I tried to, you know, really build my portfolio of homes and and my investment stuff so that I could, you know, retire and then not have to worry about because uh, I know that my pension is going to be great when I'm done with the NFL, but I just wanted to have some some extra way of making some money. So if you're advising um, or not advising, I don't want to get you in trouble with the NFL, but speaking or having a conversation with <laughs> with current <laughs> NFL players or just <clears throat> young investors in general, looking at the real estate market, what are some sectors you would identify to have probably that you think in the next 12 to 18 months are going to have their the top ROI? I think it's difficult to invest in the real estate market as a thing because I'm only more of the single family home stuff, you know, so I, I don't do the rentals. I don't do the commercial stuff. So I don't really understand a lot of that, like going through what maybe what what's going to happen. If I'm an investor in real estate right now, I'm on the, I'm going to I'm going to take I'm going to get on the sideline a little bit and I'm going to wait for things to, to calm down. Um, obviously, if you have cash, it's better because you don't have to worry about interest rates and, you know, cash is king. You'll be able to go in and buy some stuff. Um, but you know, I just would just try to start start slow. You know, if you're going to go and in, invest in real estate, just start small and, and learn, and eventually start building your portfolio and hold. <laughs> don't don't try to you know buy something and two years later flip it. I mean, just hold your assets because over time, it's it's the best investment you can do. I mean, these, these it's amazing. I went back and looked at. I've lived in 28 homes. I've had 28 homes since when I first came into the National Football League, which was in 1998. Now, part of that is investing. Part of that is also moving through my families and stuff. But I, I, an exercise I love to do, which I don't really, I like to do it, but I don't really like the results. I go back and look at some of the homes I sold over the years, way years and years ago, what they're worth today, if I was able to hold on to those things. I mean, I made some good money selling them. But for instance, like a house that was 350000 in Arizona is worth almost 900000 today. So, I mean, you could just, it's one of those things if you can afford to hold on to it. And by the way, I would also give the advice on rental properties as a player. You don't want to get into that unless you have somebody running it for you. You, you do not want to do rental properties because number one, you have to be around. And so, you know, if you're, if you live in Tennessee and you're buying properties and you're actually, you're playing in Tennessee and you're buying properties in Jersey and you got some, you, you don't, you have no idea what's, you need to be by your properties unless you have somebody running the stuff. So. That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, that so I mean, hey, perfect segue. Just quick, shameless plug for Yield Street. That's why this platform was founded because we want to, and that's again, real estate being a super popular asset yeah. class for us. That's exactly the idea, right? Is not everybody has the expertise, not everybody has the time, not everybody has the access or the cash on hand, right. especially in the commercial real estate side. Yeah. So that's really where we enter the market for people as an investment platform. We have the in-house experts, our managing director of real estate, Mitch Rosen, he's second to none in the business. And we give people access to yeah. all the deals they want at a lower minimum. You could invest in a multifamily property in Nashville on our right. platform for a minimum of, I think, 10K. Whereas yeah. if you were to try to do that on your own, you can't. Well, first of all, you can't. <laughs> Maybe some of the guys in the yeah. NFL can, but yeah. definitely. Yeah. I think the other big thing about it, and I think you kind of asked me this before, is that the comfortability with who you're with, you know, that that's very important. And I think that, you know, when these young guys come out of college, they're, they're, in, they're investing basically with an agent, right? Because the agent is kind of, they're going to be their guy, their financial guy. Um, and, and nowadays, there's, there's many facets of their team, if you will. You know, they've got a financial guy, they've got an insurance guy, they've got a, this guy, they got an investment guy, they got all this stuff. And so, you know, they've got a, they got somebody that's, that's running their social media stuff. So it's a big team that's involved in it. And I think it's important that you get to know those people before you make a move financially. And I know it's hard sometimes because they're good. People can talk and they can they can sway you this and that but just do your research talk to people about those people who are those other people doing business with talk to those people first because there's a lot of badness out there and people can lose some money oh you hear the horror stories all the time and it spans far beyond the nfl it's, it's horrible it's, it's whether it's, it's a financial it's, advisor a friend yeah, an uncle somebody in the business you you would be so surprised at all the guys that give uncle joe their money 
<laughs> I feel it, like I wouldn't be surprised. It is really sad. And uh, and they always have, you know, the guys that, you know, they take care of their bros. You know, hey, listen, you know, I'm a, this is a good friend of mine. This guy's this, you know. And, and by the way, they're always got their hands out, you know. And before you know it, you're you're going to this, you're going to that, you're paying for this, you're paying for that. And next thing you know, uh, you know, they're just, you, you don't have any money left. The, one of the saddest stories I ever heard, of, and I won't say the names, but I heard there was a player who got... Uh, a signing bonus from his team, $300,000 signing bonus. Uh, this just goes to show you how misinformed and everything that he was just not in the right place with the right people. He went to a drive through ATM and tried to deposit his check in an ATM. <laughs> so you're 300000 you, So you can't deposit 300000 <laughs> Evidently, that bank said no. <laughs> but my point is, is that who is helping this person? From from the organizational part of it, like, okay, you know, hey, Joe, here's your signing bonus. Who's your financial guy? Or what, you know, just, you know, I'm not saying you have to do this, but do you have somebody taking care of this stuff for you? Or to down to, like, where is, where is the support that this guy should be getting financially, you know? They feel very comfortable with giving Uncle Joe their money because they're a relative. They don't feel comfortable giving money to people that they don't know unless that's why I'm saying you got to do your due diligence. You got to feel comfortable with those people. And that's, I'm sure that that's the platform you guys take, you know, you have to be comfortable with us, you know, and let's just show you what we're doing. And then we have the right people. Education is a huge part of what we do. And it's on our platform. It's not just financial professionals yeah. that use it. It's everybody, teachers, doctors, lawyers, I mean, accountants, you name it, everybody that works, service industry professionals, whoever. And that's why we started this podcast. That was the entire point was giving somebody a consistent stream of information right. from just professionals and thought leaders across the industry. The one thing that I, when I got involved in the NFL and I started making money and I hired my own, my financial guy, I, the one thing that I wanted them to know was that in order for me to be successful on the field, is that I don't want to have to be thinking about my money. Like, I don't have to go on Sunday to go play a game thinking, do I have enough money in my checking account that my wife's going to go buy groceries? You know, <laughs> I don't want to have to think about that stuff. So that's important because if you don't have to think about those types of things, you have a better chance of playing as longer than you will because that's not on your mind. And so if you have good people working for you, then that's something you don't have to worry about. You can just concentrate on football. And by the way, when you concentrate on football, you play another year. Concentrate on football, you play another year. You make a million and a half this year, you make two million the next year, then you make three million. So if you get people to take care of that stuff for you and not have to worry about it and know that it's invested right and know that if I end up playing, I think that I'm gonna play 10 years and you play 12 or you think you play three, you play nine, before you know it, all that money is gonna turn into gold for you and you're gonna be totally fine. So I think it's the relationship business, which you guys are in is very important for younger players and even some of the veterans that maybe have not had the right people, but eventually hook up with the right people and then it helps them succeed on the field. 100% and you touched on a point that Sean O'Hara, when we had him on the show, made a, an amazing quote and I have it, let me pull it up, I have it written down here. He said, the life of an NFL player is so short. So by the time players really start to figure out things like their finances, once they start to figure that out, they're kind of on their way out of the yeah, NFL at that right. point. Yeah. So to your point, how do you manage that? And I feel they do make that mistake because they do want to be focused on football and the longevity of their career, that it is that much easier instead of doing the research or having the time to do it. It's much easier to give old Uncle Joe yeah. the reins because he ran a successful like small business for sure. a while. So yeah. he clearly knows how to yeah. handle yeah. millions and millions of dollars at the NFL level. <laughs> not true uh, <laughs> but you know and the thing about it is it's a very sad situation but um there are guys that you know they just get they get taken and it's and it's just because they're they're trustworthy you know some some people are just yeah, i trust you you know but you really can't because they have no history in this stuff you know so you got to be very careful with it um and i think the biggest thing if i had to, the biggest takeaway with investing your money as you make this type of money when you start to get into the NFL, it's a lot of money. It's all six figures, no matter what. You, you, it doesn't matter if you're undrafted, drafted, whatever, you're gonna make six figures no matter what. So you're taking that money and you have to be very disciplined. And I keep using that word, but you have to understand that time and the power of time and money is just put it away. 
put it away. I know it's hard to do, but just have somebody take it away from you and don't even know it's there. And then if you decide that you want to use it to invest something, make sure you're doing it with the right people. That's really, it's, it's a simple concept, but it's very difficult in the real world when you think about it. So that's an interesting segue. And let's touch on this for a couple of minutes um, before we wrap here. That money is coming to players sooner compared to where it had, well, I'll say legally coming to players sooner before it had been. Whereas you used to have boosters and whatnot back in the day. Yeah. Now yeah. we have NIL. So gone are the days where you're handing somebody that's 21, first rookie in the NFL, sure. a million dollar check. You're now handing yeah. freshman in college a million dollar check potentially. Yeah. And How you do know you what, think that's going to affect? Well, leave it, leave, it to the NF, leave it to the NCAA to have this happen because they, they already screw up so much stuff to begin with. And now they're really, this is like, this is an incredible stupid in my opinion. Um, it's the only now I, I'm I'm all for helping players in that are in college with some some money, but to put no cap on this thing, like you know, like give me I mean seriously, there's gonna be there's guys making millions of dollars coming out of high school. How how in the world are these supposed to, first of all, I don't even know, I think my kids in high school never they never took a finance class ever. I, I took they, I took AP economics and that was the only finance course I had in high school ever and and that had nothing to do with investing it was all economics about yep, it how the theory. world works about it but my point is is that so now you really are going to rely on Uncle Joe right because you've really Uncle Joe's a young guy and I guess he's the guy that what else do we do so I just think now it just trickles down those agents are going to be all the way down and I I don't think you can have agents in in college so where is this money going to it's going to them their parents. A checking so account? A checking account, a deposit in an ATM machine. <laughs> I mean, you got to be very careful. And I think this is why I think it's, you know, I'm all for paying athletes. It's got to be a diff it's got to be a certain way and like a cap on the thing. But, you know, this is just going to get out of hand. Definitely. I mean, other, other big news there was Arch Manning committing to Texas, which probably had something to do with NIL, if I had to guess. I, I would Not imagine. Not that he needs the money. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know what? It's it's all about opportunity, right? So, um, and again, I think we were talking a little of this before we came on the air is that I think that Texas eventually is going to be going to a, a different conference is probably one of the reasons why, you know, the SEC is the conference to play in. Um, you succeed in the SEC, you're going to succeed in the NFL at a high level. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there is probably the other teams that were involved in trying to get him to come to their 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 school was probably hey we'll give you this well we'll give you this but um it just becomes a lot of money i wouldn't i mean i'm i don't know what are you guessing i mean i gotta think that so archman he's gonna be there three years right he has to be there for three years yep so nine million over three years three million a year somewhere i mean there was a quarterback i never heard of that got a million dollars to come play football i think doug ebert from this is again different sport but doug ebert from st peter's university i think got a million for his NIL deal, and nobody knew his name before this. Everybody's known Arch Manning since he could walk. And I think something tells me there's a lot of money in oil in Texas, so I think that probably somebody's going to be able to get some some sort done there. Yeah, I don't doubt it. And like you said, you touched on the fact that he's got the SEC probably coming right down the pipe at this point. Now, so I will tell you this. I'm not worried about Arch Manning and his money. <laughs> he's got a couple of people that know how to manage millions and millions of dollars, and it will probably give him some good advice. But, you know, the fact is, is that if, if some young kid uh, that has no experience or has anybody that has experience with money, handing them $3 million is going to be a problem. Oh, again. We were just talking about be a all the problem issues. for him. <laughs> no, we all just talked about the issues of handing a 21-year-old $3 million, yeah. never mind an 18-year-old. 17, 18-year-old. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally, and especially being alone, maybe alone for the first time in Texas and obviously the most popular person or one of the most popular right. people in that city. I guess not we just can campus. equate it to you know, going and buy a scratch-off ticket at 18 when you can legally buy one, right, and winning $3 million. There you go. What are you going to do with it? So education and financial education specifically is – important yeah, very, at very all important. ages and never stop learning at yeah. that point so with the last few minutes we have here i'd be remiss if i didn't talk to you about the giants upcoming season yeah let's yeah what, what do you think dive in let's give your well, five minute take i will tell you this i i think that as a as a giants fan which i am and uh the people watching this for the giants fans that are out there um this when joe judge came a couple of years ago 
I was on the Joe Judge bandwagon because of the discipline and I've, you know, coming from New England and kind of, you know, the way that they do things up there. Evidently, it didn't work out and things just there was a big change in the organization um, for the wrong way. And so with Dave Gettleman also there, I think things were just it was a little bit stagnant and it just didn't go the way it was supposed to go. This new organ, this new regime that's come in, starting with Joe uh, Shane. First of all, he worked behind the guy up in in uh, Buffalo. Okay, uh, Bean, Brandon Bean. That guy took that that organization from what the Giants have been in the last two years to a to a team that's going to compete for the Pro Bowl in five or six years later, right? Or excuse yep. me, the Super Bowl. So he learned from that. They also have a coach that came from there that wasn't the head coach, but worked underneath the coaches that are up there in the organization. And by the way, had one of the, the best offenses you can get in the National Football League. Now, the only caution I can tell about Giants fans is that Daniel Jones is not Josh Allen. OK, and Brian Dable is not uh, the coaches up there. Um, forget his name. But anyways, my point is, is that this is definitely going in the right direction. I feel like I'm around the building a lot that the. the the atmosphere, the energy, and just the way that they're doing things seems to me that this is going in the right direction. The Giants went outside the box and hired somebody outside the organization, which probably should have been done a while ago. And now they have succeeded in that sense. And so I think that you're going to see gradual progression and this, t- and this organization and the team are going to get, they're going to get better and better and better. There's still a lot of work to do because this team is, is young and it doesn't have a lot of depth. That was one of the problems with the Giants the last couple of years. There was no depth. When there was an injury at a position, we didn't even know the guy's name behind him. <laughs> so it's like, how do you expect them to play and compete? Um, and you had mentioned you had gone to some, some of the games like in October on. I mean, yep. it was really difficult to watch, especially the last two minutes of a half. And so I feel like the coaching staff that's here now, experienced. You got Mike Kafka, the offensive coordinator that's coming from uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, which, by the way, he was the quarterback coach for Patrick Mahomes. You have uh, Brian Dable, who had the number one offense in the National Football League, calling plays for the Buffalo Bills, is now your head coach. Yep. So, And you got Joe Shane, who's now running things completely different. They changed the scouting staff around. Uh, they had to make some maneuvers because they're under, their cap is a horrible situation. So the National Football League deals with money, and it deals with each team has only so much money to spend. And so – that's his job is to try to get this team back to where it's going to be. But I, I feel really good about it. Do I feel like Super Bowl? No. But I do I feel like a competitive every game, meaning that I think the Giants have a chance, and you're going to see that. They're not going to win every game, but I think it's going to be a good season. I think the first uh, – I think you're 100% correct in everything you said, and that's a fantastic assessment. Clearly, you have the experience to judge that better than I do, but I'm definitely optimistic. I think the draft went well. Would you agree? Oh, 100%. And, and if you look at the way that they drafted, they drafted at different positions, and that's because this team needs depth. And so, you know, young guys, it's, like I said, the first couple rounds, those guys are going to play. You know, Neil will be your starting right tackle, and you're, you're going to see uh, Wondell Robinson, who's the third-round pick, um, second-round pick, third-round pick. He's going to play. Obviously, Thibodeau is going to be fun to watch. So – but I think that the draft was a good start, and I think they got some really good, good players. And I think that's a product of what Joe Shane, being the general manager and scouting and bringing in really good players. The big thing about the draft is to get you want to keep your players. <laughs> you want to get them to that next contract. And the Giants have a history of not doing that. They either leave for free agency or they just don't pan out. So that's what you don't want to have happen. You want to keep your players at your draft. Keeping the talent there is a problem across the board for New Jersey sports teams. And yeah, apparently exactly. one New York ones that play in Jersey. <laughs> 100%. So three quick fire questions for sure. you. Do the Giants make the playoffs this year? No. Do the Giants make the playoffs next year? Yes. When will the Giants win an NFC East championship? I think they will compete for one next year and maybe in the in three years from – so in three years. And then do we have a Super Bowl appearance in the next five years? I would say that one thing, if we, if, if the quarterback situation can get resolved, whether it is Daniel Jones and he's now put in a system that he can succeed in, um, great. Or if he's not the guy, then there has to be a quarterback. The number one 
it's the number one job you have to have to win a Super Bowl or to get this Super Bowl as a quarterback position. If the Giants can get that position secured, whether it is Daniel Jones or it's not, I would say in the next five years, yes. That's a lot to go on, but I think uh, we have a pretty good idea then. So for everybody placing bets right now on DraftKings, you heard it here first. <laughs> Jeff, any parting thoughts for the audience? No, I mean, I just first of all, thank you guys for having me. It's been fun to uh, to talk a little bit and reminisce. But, you know, most, more importantly for investing purposes and things like that, there's all kinds of different things you can get into. But I think the bottom line is that when you do get into it, just do your research and find out and really learn about what you're doing. And then also just feel comfortable with who you're doing it with because there's a lot of strategies that you don't know about and there's a lot of things that you need to understand in business that, you know, young people, for, and even older people, you know, if they've only been doing something for one way their whole lives, they need to, to, to reach out and trust some other people and get some information. That's, That's about it. <laughs> That's sound advice. Jeff, thank you so much You're for welcome. joining us today. Absolute pleasure having you on the show, and I'm sure we're going to see you around MetLife this oh, I'll be there. season. Yeah, I'm definitely be there. We so can't can wait. Come and watch us, uh, at the pregame show. We're always out there. For the home games, we're on that MetLife stage. So anybody coming to the Giants game before the game starts, we'll be up on the stage. Come up and say hi. We'll definitely see you there at MetLife in East Rutherford. Can't wait. And for everybody watching at home, remember to tune into The Yield on a weekly basis. You can subscribe to the audio show on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere our podcasts are available. And remember, hammer that like button on YouTube. Leave us a five-star review on Apple, and that'll help us get more guests like Jeff back in the show. See you all next week. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at YieldStreet.com.